Well, good morning. We've uh, returned to our series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, as Bob mentioned last week when he started us off again in chapter 26, which we'll continue in today. And our goal is to complete this study by the Advent series, which takes place uh, or starts in November and goes through part of November into December. And then uh, we have a, a new study we'll be starting in Matthew or uh, in uh, January that uh, we will announce as we get a little bit closer. Um, for those who are visiting with us or haven't been with us for a long time, I uh, just thought it would be something to understand that um, we uh, typically will take a book of the Bible and preach through it from beginning to end and then uh, move to another book of the Bible. Occasionally during the year, as we did during the summer, we'll take a short break and do, in some ways, a little more uh, topical study just to kind of break up the, the longer uh, books and cover some, give us an opportunity to cover some other points of theology and doctrine that we would like you to learn as we study and, and grow together in Christ. So, uh, but the typical process is that we will pick a book of the Bible and then we will preach through that book. We think that's the, uh, the appropriate way to do it. That is more beneficial that way. And as we preach through those verses of the various books, whatever doctrines or points of theology we come up to as it is in that particular book, then that's when we teach it. And uh, if you are with us long enough, which some of you have been, you've probably gone through a lot of books of the Bible with us, and uh, the rest of you will just have to plan on being here for quite some time and uh, go with us as we continue venturing through God's Word together. Let's uh, begin today's passage by asking God to uh, assist us as we open His Word. Father, thank you again for this day and this opportunity we have to come together as your children. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. And now as we come to this time in the service where we open your word and start looking at what it is that you have for us today in this passage in Matthew 26, we ask that you will be with us, that you'll teach us, that you'll encourage us, that you'll discipline us where we need to be disciplined, that you will make us into the men and women of God that you want us to be. We thank you that your Holy Spirit and your word is actively involved in, in, in changing our lives and making us more and more like Christ. And even though we are far from that, we know that, Lord, you love us and that you are changing us. And we pray that you will do that today and continue the uh, sanctification of our lives here on earth. We look forward to the day when we are in glory and we have the glorified body. And we don't have to go through all this. In Jesus' name, amen. I apologize for the uh, lengthy um, scripture reading. The verses pertain to uh, the new covenant. And you'll understand as we get a little um, further into today's message about why I spent time on that. It also saves me from having to go to that during the uh, passage part or the sermon part, which would have taken that much more time also to, to go through it. But the, the new covenant is something that I will talk to you about. But you are, if you are a Christian today, you are a Christian and you are in Christ because of that new covenant that we are a part of. And, and it's, it's always... Uh, uh, good to see that uh, even though we are considered a New Testament church in the sense that we are in the church age, that we exist in the church age, and that's where we are living at the moment, that the Old Testament scriptures are just as vital to us today as they were to the people they were written to in the Old Testament days and in the lands of Israel, and that the promises that took place and were written and given in the time of the Old Testament days they are for us too. And we are the victors and the recipients of those scriptures. And uh, so it's nice to have that tie-in and, uh, and realize that it's not just history. It's not just things that happen to somebody else, but it's things that are happening to us. Last week, Bob told us that um, 
Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. You can start turning in your Bible to Matthew 26. and We'll be starting at verse 14 in just a minute. The events of verses 1 through 16 that he went through last week occurred. There's some differences. I'm not going to get into the big differences. Either two or three days before Passover. That's really not my focus today in the sense of, of going over some of the hard verses that we run into once in a while. But uh, I, I believe it was probably two days before the Passover lamb was killed and eaten. That was what time frame we're talking about. The week, Passover week, consisted of seven days of observances and included the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is mentioned in this passage, and that's why I want to point that out, which followed immediately after Passover. And then the entire time, that entire week, it has typically been considered Passover, or the Passover week, or the Passover festival. So it kind of combines both of those festivals together to make the Passover. The Passover, and we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Jesus reminds the disciples that he will be delivered up to be crucified in verse 2. And this is followed with details of a conversation that the chief priests and elders of the people had at the same time. And I think it probably actually happened possibly at the same time. While Jesus is talking to his disciples, the chief priests and the elders were sitting over in their corner going, hey, you know what, I think it's time. We've got to deal with this guy. So it's very possible that was going on at the same time. And we have the benefit of the New Testament laying out what is taking place. The priests and elders were tired of Jesus. And the effect that he was having on their power, for one, and on their wealth. These are men who were becoming very wealthy as the leaders of the country and over the temple. Because they were very typically thieves and people who were taking far more than what they were entitled to by, uh, by custom in, in uh, Levitical law. They agreed between themselves to finally get rid of this pest, Jesus, that has been hounding them for a number of years now. But they're not in the positions they're in because they're stupid. They would have to wait to, for a more politically opportune time. They, they knew they can't do it during this feast time. One, because they know Jesus has a following. He's been heard by many people. He's been heal, healing people. He's been doing things that have astonished many people in the, in the country of Israel and in the regions around. So they had to be careful. They couldn't just take him because they were concerned that things could happen. And not only that, but at the time of Passover, the population swelled. I've seen anywhere from as many as two to three million people in a, in a Middle uh, Eastern biblical time city. That was a huge population. There's probably not very many cities in that time era that had that many people. So it would swell to that, and I can almost picture, and I've seen, you know, movies and various things that uh, tried to at least depict how it might have been, and uh, you can just imagine that the alleyways have tents set up and the roofs have tents, and people are sleeping and camping everywhere because they would not normally have that many people in Jerusalem, so they had to try to find places for them all to to stay. So the, the leaders knew that they needed to be careful about dealing with Jesus because there's many followers of Jesus, some who believe that he is the Messiah, which would be a problem to try to take him out of the picture. The other is if they didn't think he was the Messiah, there were many who thought that he was at least a prophet. And as a prophet of God, he would, he would have great authority and, and respect among the people of Israel. So this was something to be concerned about. But something happened that they didn't expect. 
one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, came to them with an opportunity. Take a look at verse 14 of chapter 26. That's where we'll begin. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas would, have, Judas would take them to Jesus at a time when he could be taken with minimal risk. Judas would betray Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver, which was the redemption price paid for a slave at that time. One commentator I read stated that Judas would not only betray Jesus by setting up a situation or, or, or giving them information on where Jesus would be at a particular time and particular place, but that in fact he would also be a witness against him if he was brought to trial. So they felt that the, the, the way that the language was written here actually was more involved than just setting him up, but that he would go against him and testify against him. So it would even be a more thorough betrayal, if you will, um, in the sense of what this one commentator thought. But whatever the extent of his betrayal, he not only made his name infamous. I mean, how many times, I don't know if it's, you know, in America, sometimes if you, you have a, someone who's a traitor or something, you, we might call him a, a Benedict Arnold. But there's a lot of people also that call people a Judas. And that's the idea behind it. He's a betrayer, a traitor. And uh, so his name became infamous to that and revealed his true character. But he also condemned his soul to destruction. Jesus told his disciples that he was to be betrayed. And he said, woe to the man by whom the, man, the Son of Man is betrayed. In John 17, 12, he also said in, in what is called the high priestly prayer that he has kept all those that are his, given to him by the Father, and guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction. Now that verse could cause us a little bit of heartache or problems if we didn't take Scripture as a whole, and, and understanding of Scripture as a whole. This doesn't mean that Judas had believed on Jesus at one time and was saved, and then somehow had lost his salvation. Because we know that from other Scriptures, that once a person is saved, he's saved, he's, he's kept through Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. He's preserved. So it can't mean that he was saved and then lost his salvation somehow. The Westminster Confession actually states on this, that they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So the accepted understanding from the days of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation is that salvation is, is forever. Salvation is secure. You're preserved. You persevere through the Spirit in your faith. So what Jesus said about losing the Son of Destruction and what he obviously meant in that prayer is that Judas was never saved in the first place. An interesting question in this event is that Jesus had just spent three years in a very personal relationship with the Messiah, just as the other disciples did. This is Jesus Christ. And in the end, what does he do? He betrays him for a handful of coin. We may ask, how can this be? How can a person who walked with Jesus when he was on earth, possibly have done this. Might even condemn him in our minds. 
But when we read these things, sometimes we need to be more careful and, and understand some of the things that this could be meaning in our lives. But we should see from it that you can be someone who can be in a very personal relationship with Jesus. You could go to church faithfully. You could read your Bible on a regular basis. You could be a preacher or a pastor of a church and still not be saved. And perish in the end. We have Judas as a very vivid example of this. Also interesting is the fact that while Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, it didn't seem like the other disciples had a clue. Judas must have been a very good pretender. And in the church today, there are very good pretenders. That's one reason why frequently when I'm preaching, I make sure to give a gospel message even to those that are among us that you know have, have been here for many years. And maybe an assumption would be that you're all saved. But there are pretenders among us. I actually visited a church when we first moved up here, up in Eureka, and, and uh, the preacher preached a sermon, and it was a, a very gospel uh, focused sermon and at the end he just ended the service said a prayer dismissed everybody and everyone got up and started walking out and I happened to catch him at the back door which was probably something he wasn't expecting but uh, we talked for a minute and I asked him I said you know pastor that was a good sermon but you had such an opportunity to call the lost to Christ at the end of it why didn't you and he said, eh, I know everybody here. They're all saved. You didn't know us. We just visited for the first time. And that was the last time we went there because he was kind of upset with me. So, But I don't want to be that pastor. I don't want to be that person that presumes that everybody here has a saving and is in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We want you to be, but I don't want to make that presumption. Jesus knew Judas's heart and knew his intentions. He couldn't hide this from Jesus. Jesus knew he was going to betray him. The amazing thing is that he knew the whole time that Judas was going to be the betrayer. And he continued as a disciple, he chose him as one of the disciples and he continues walking the road to the cross in Jerusalem. That is going to happen in just a few days. And then this passage says, from that point, Judas begins to look for an opportunity to betray him. So he began actively seeking an opportunity to, to send information to the priest and say, okay, tonight's the night. What a dramatic contrast to this event that was described just before the passage of, uh, or I'm sorry, this passage coming after the one just before this with Judas being, or Jesus being anointed at uh, Bethany that we talked about last week. Remember Mary took a very expensive jar of ointment and anointed Jesus and worshipped him. And Jesus said that this was being done in preparation for his burial. And that was this was a, a, a wonderful thing she's doing. And then immediately after that passage we have one of his closest followers betraying him for some change. This offer that Judas made to betray Jesus kind of put the the um, the chief priests in the the elders in a little bit of a precarious situation because we just talked about them being careful not to do it during the festival because 
of the concerns they have of that. But what happens? Judas comes up and goes, hey, by the way, I can give them to you. So we find in the next couple chapters that the arrest, trial, conviction, and execution of Jesus and burial of Jesus is rushed because now they only have a couple days. When Judas comes to them, they have to respond and go and, and deal with Jesus. I think that's partially why we, when as we read through this, uh, in the past I always thought that it was because they were being secretive, that they were doing a lot of these activities at night. And that may have something to do with it, that they were taking advantage of night to be able to, you know, most people are going to be asleep at that time. But it also has to do where they're rushed. they got to get this done before Passover. So when it happens, they have to move forward and push this system through and get this man condemned, hung, and buried so that they can celebrate the Passover. Look at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, for the sake of any of you that are here that may not know exactly what the Passover is, I want to take a short detour and explain some, because I want you to understand the significance of what's taking place in the story that we are reading about tonight or today. That helps us to have a clearer picture. I also know that there are some that uh, are new Christians here. There's some that may not have had the benefit of learning some of the things. You may have heard about the Passover, but you never really have had the opportunity to hear or read about uh, the early history of Israel. And I just want you to, to be able to understand with us. So the story of the events that led to Passover is, is found in Exodus, specifically chapter 12 in this case. The Israelites had been in Egypt for about 400 years by this time, initially by invitation, but eventually they were seized and held as slaves to the Egyptians. The Egyptians became cruel taskmasters. And the people of Israel suffered greatly. And they would plead frequently to God for deliverance during this time of captivity. God heard their prayers and their pleas, but he had also promised that one day he would deliver his people and bring them to the land of milk and honey, Canaan, which is the present-day region of Israel as we know it. He appointed and sent a man by the name of Moses, to Egypt to bring the, Israel, the Israelites out. Moses went to the Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, and he demanded that the Pharaoh allow the Israelites to leave. Pharaoh refused, and God, using Moses, brings ten plagues on the Egyptians and the land to convince them to let the Israelites leave and to punish them because of what they have done to the Israelites. Each plague was bad in and of itself. And the suffering of the Egyptian people was great. Moses, in one of them, the first one, turned the Nile River, which was the source of all water in Israel. So, in, in theory, all water in Egypt was turned into blood. It became undrinkable. There was a plague where the land was taken over by frogs. And then another one, they were it was taken over by gnats. Have you ever been camping towards dark, or probably usually is towards dark, and all those gnats come out? Just imagine that going on all the time. And worse, big swarms. The next plague was flies. That would have gotten me. That would have gave up. All the livestock of the Egyptians died in the next one. 
The people develop painful boils on their bodies. These are big sores all over their bodies that's, that itch and ache and hurt, and they're just all over. Job, when he had them, explained that how he would itch so bad he'd take shards of pottery and, and scratch to try to get the itch taken care of. Hell fell from the sky and destroyed their crops. Locusts were released on the Egyptians. And, and unless you know what hordes of locusts do, they eat the crops. So they'll come and they'll go through a, a grain field, for instance, and just eat everything in sight. And there's, you know, there's no more crop. And then there was darkness that fell on the land for three days, day and night for three days. While all these plagues were falling on Egypt, though the Israelites were saved from them, they were unaffected by what was taking place in the sense of of having to deal with the same thing. I'm sure they were affected in the sense that the Egyptians are mad at them now because they're not being affected by this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't let the people go. Every time I read or hear this story, I always think back at to the movie uh, The Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston and your old Brenner that uh, play those parts. If you haven't ever seen those, which I would imagine some of you haven't, you're, you're probably not understanding that, but um, it it's, uh, gives a real good picture in your head as this, uh, this story is being read. So the final plague is threatened and released. And that, th- that plague was that every firstborn male of the land of Egypt, Egyptians, foreigners, and animals, the firstborn male, and think what that would extend to. That doesn't just mean if you had children, the first boy. That also meant that if dad was the firstborn, it affected him too. If if you had slaves in your house, the firstborn male of any of those would be affected. So this was widespread. This would, this would affect every single family in the land of Egypt. For the Israelites to be saved in this particular plague from death of their own firstborn males, they had to observe the instructions given to them for Passover. That's where we're going with this. Among other details, it involved killing a lamb, taking some of the blood and placing it on the doorposts and on the lintels of the houses in the, in the homes that the lamb was going to be eaten. The lamb is then roasted and eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then as God comes over the lamb and strikes dead the firstborn, Every time he sees the blood on the doorpost, he passes over that house and death does not come. Think of the picture that we frequently are talking about with death being required of sin, blood being the, the picture, if you will, of death and needing to be shed, and then the passing over of God, as he passes over these homes. It's a festival that's connected to the exodus from Egypt, and it's never to be forgotten. This was a a festival that the Israelites were told once they left Egypt that they needed to carry out every year for seven days. It became entrenched in Israel's traditions and has always marked the day of redemption from Egypt in the history of in, uh, Israel. Now, I would imagine, as I was thinking through this, that this holiday in Israel, even in the days that it was uh, you know, most new to them in the earlier history of Israel, there were probably people that observed it that didn't fully understand or know or, or, or accept what was going on. They just did the observation because... It was expected of them. They were Jewish, they were of the Israelites, and they had to follow it. 
at the time of Passover in Jesus' day, there were probably people there that just observed the holiday because it was the holiday and that's what they're supposed to do to be a good Jew. It meant nothing to them spiritually or individually. That's very possible. But this is what the Jews are celebrating in this section of Matthew, is this Passover festival that was set up from the days of Exodus. Now back to Matthew 26. Jesus intended to to institute during Passover, which I think this is the main reason that Jesus, well, it's not the main reason because he's going to the cross, but the main reason that he is going at the time of Passover to Jerusalem to have this meal is his intent is to set up and establish the Lord's Supper for his people, for his disciples and his followers. So he intends to set this up during the upcoming meal and and he sends Peter and John. It doesn't say that in Matthew, but I think Luke is where it identifies them in particular. But Peter and John with very detailed information to make preparations for the, the whole group to eat Passover. The verses indicate to us that Jesus is very intentional in what he's doing and where he's going. Jesus knows what he wants, where it's going to take place, and what's going to happen in the end. He knew he was going to be betrayed soon by the high priest. He knew Judas was going to be involved in that. And he knew that he would eventually be crucified. Yet he continued on his journey to the cross. Jesus here, you get the the idea that he's being discreet while arranging this place, but that was probably because he, he didn't want to get arrested prematurely because he wanted to have this meal and set this thing up with, with his disciples, the Lord's Supper. And he also knows that Judas is looking for an opportunity. So they, they need to be a little bit careful as they enter Jerusalem and set this up. But Jesus is also very much in charge of what is going on. He's the one who knows where they're going, why they're going there, and what will happen when they get there. The disciples are just following. They keep hearing what he says. He just told them a few verses back that I'm going to be crucified. And it's like they hear it, but they don't. Or they hear it and they don't fully understand it somehow. And we know that is primarily that at the time it was said, it wasn't that they are ignorant. It's that their minds were just not open yet to fully understand it. That happens after it all takes place. And then the Holy Spirit comes and it says their minds were opened to the point where they could now see. This is how we can understand, if you will, that you can hear things. You can be in the same crusade or the same church, hear the same message. Some people hear and receive and others don't. They hear the same message. But some people's minds are not open to be able to hear. Their heart hasn't been changed. Your mind hasn't been opened by the Holy Spirit to be able to receive what is being said. But Jesus is very much aware and in charge of what's taking place. He's not being taken by surprise when the chief priests show up in the garden in a number of hours to arrest him. Didn't surprise him because he knew it was going to happen. And we know this because in Ephesians 5, there's a verse that says that he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If he wasn't giving himself up, if they were surprising him and taking him and killing him without him giving himself up, then... It, it, it would not mean the same. It would not have the same effect, if you will, uh, to what took place. But God sent His Son to die. And that was the whole purpose of the Son of Man coming for His earthly period was to live 
a perfect life following the law and to die on the cross for his people. And he gave himself up for this. The disciples go and they find everything just as Jesus told them they would, would happen. So all the details worked out. It probably took the disciples a good part of the day to find the location, purchase the food and drink and prepare it and get everything ready to go. You know, you don't, you don't cook a lamb in a few minutes. It took a little while. And then we're told in verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. So they, the remainder, Jesus and the other disciples showed up around dinner time and they go into this place and things are ready. And he's with his twelve. Many times there, there were much larger groups. This is very specific to his followers, his twelve disciples. During this meal, a very interesting exchange happened between Judas and Jesus in the presence of the others. And from it, we see Jesus' omniscience, that he understands, he knows all things. In verse 21 it says, And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were all very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who was who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? What did the other guys say? Is it I, Lord? But what does Judas say? He's not... He's not de- declaring him, if you will, as Lord. He's declaring him teacher, rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now in Middle, Middle Eastern culture, especially at this time, sharing a meal together establishes a bond of intimate fellowship. You see how closely they, they are. They recline together. They're sharing of a cup. They're dipping into the same bowl with their bread and taking whatever it is on the on the, the, the bread. So it's a very intimate meal that is being had. And to betray that bond would be the worst of trickery in their culture. So what Judas is doing is not only horrible in the sense of everybody, even after the fact, of us looking back going, how could he? But to those that, it, that was there, it was even more horrible because of what he was doing. Each disciple sadly asked Jesus if he was the betrayer. So they're going to him, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? But none of them pointed a finger at each other or even to Judas. That's why it's amazing that it doesn't appear that they know that Judas is the betrayer. They're asking if they're the betrayer. Of course, we already know that he is the the one because Scripture tells us. Jesus says he will go to the cross just as the Scriptures have said and addresses Judas. Remember, at this particular time, Judas had not yet betrayed Jesus. He's taken the money. He's made a commitment. But he hasn't done the act. He could have had this conversation with Jesus and been remorseful and confessed and repented of what he was doing. He could have. That was an opportunity he had, among other opportunities that he probably had. But this is a very 
personal intimate opportunity that he could have had something ping, stick him in the heart and go, God, this is wrong. I'm going to repent of this. And he doesn't. Instead, he left and he began to put a plan into motion. The other disciples apparently didn't hear this exchange between Jesus and Judas because my guess is that if they had, they wouldn't have let him leave the room. They knew he was going to go betray Jesus. But Judas left. After Judas left, Jesus proceeded to institute the Lord's Supper that we still observe today in the church. But he added something new in the Passover meal. He was probably following the rituals for Passover, which are very detailed and exact on how you're supposed to do this. And it had been observed for generations. And Jesus probably was going through many of those rituals up to this point. And then in verse 26, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my, is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He finished a prayer and he broke the bread and distributed and said, this is my body. That's a, a sharp break from all the that's familiar in the Passover observance. And according to James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary, um, he pointed out that that was the drastic difference in what was taking place. With these words, Jesus transforms the Passover into the first observance of the Lord's Supper. That was the first time. Jesus takes the bread and cup and gives them a special meaning. He said the bread was his body and the wine was his blood of the new covenant, as Luke describes it in his description of this event. And Paul uses that description in 1 Corinthians 11, which we frequently use when we observe and have communion together. That blood of the new covenant. And that's why those verses during the scripture reading, I wanted to go through that. That's the new covenant. That's what's taking place here. The new covenant begins with Jesus Christ. He brought in and secured the new covenant that we are a part of. The bread and wine represented his body and blood about to be shed in keeping with the remissions of sins promised in the new covenant that was revealed in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God promised to replace the Mosaic covenant, which was a, another covenant that was made with the Israelites that required them to obey the law, to maintain their part of the covenant. God had things he did. The people had things they did. The problem is they couldn't. They couldn't follow the law. God promised to replace the Mosaic covenant with a new covenant. And this is it. That Jesus' blood would soon be shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. The old covenant was established in Exodus 24 with Moses and involving shedding the blood of animals and offering sacrifices frequently for the atonement of sin. They were constantly having to, to do sacrifices and ask for atonement. The new covenant is made and carried out by God and is accomplished once and for all. J.I. Packer in his book, Concise Theology, says, God's covenant with Israel was preparation for the coming of God himself in person of his son to fulfill all his promises and give substance to the shadows cast by the types. Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, 
offered himself as the true and final sacrifice for sin. He obeyed the law perfectly, and as the second representative head of the human race, he became the inheritor of all the covenant blessings of pardon, peace, and fellowship with God in his renewed creation. And we are a party of that because Jesus accomplished it. Jesus linked the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in this passage, and he makes it clear that his death was the fulfillment and end of millions of blood sacrifices that had been used to seal and maintain the Old Covenant in the past. There would be no more need for sacrifices once Jesus died for our sins. Boyce concluded this section by explaining in the Old Covenant, the people would be required to keep their part of it, which they could not. In the New Covenant, God's people would be empowered to keep the law, which is written on their hearts and minds. The Mosaic Covenant, you had to follow the law. You couldn't follow the law, which is the reason all these sacrifices had to keep getting made, because you kept breaking the law. In the New Covenant, we can, because the law is now, if you're a believer, in your heart. And part of what takes place is that you are given the ability to follow the law. Before, you had to try to do it on your own. Now we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to do it. The theological point of this text is that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of many. Jesus' sacrifice is symbolically represented in the future tense by the Lamb and the Passover observance. So even at the time the Passover was initiated in Exodus. It had to do with the the uh, the Exodus from Egypt, but the picture, the future picture that they would have from that, is the Lamb of God being killed, the blood being shed for the remission of sins, for their redemption, and that was what was taking place. And that Passover Lamb represents that. Jesus' sacrifice is symbolically represented. And in the past tense, in the Lord's Supper, by the elements, which we have in the uh, meal that we take, the bread and the juice that we use. At no time, though, did the disciples understand or believe that Jesus is teaching that the bread and wine were anything more than representative. And I say that because some of you have come from a Catholic background and they do believe that they become, at the time of communion, Jesus' blood and and body is flesh. And it doesn't. And there's no indication at all in this teaching that Jesus is having with his disciples that that was intended for it to be uh, understood. They are to symbolically represent for us the giving of his life for us. So, what a perfect opportunity for me to be able to walk us into communion after just learning a little bit about it, about the Passover. Hopefully that brief detail gives you at least a little more uh, understanding about why this was important at the time of Jesus to observe this Passover and what was going on when the Passover becomes what we observe now as the Lord's Supper with the minor changes that have taken place. But the idea still is is an opportunity for us to come together and remember what it is that Jesus did for us. He died. He shed his blood so that we can be saved. So that when God is looking down upon us, instead of seeing our sins and having to deal with us in a just way by 
destroying us, if you're one of his children, he instead sees Jesus' righteousness on you. That's what this is all about. And every time we take this, that should come to mind of what it costs for us to be able to celebrate together. But it's not meant to just be that. It's meant to be one of fellowship with each other, fellowship with God, being able to encourage each other as brothers and sisters and sharing this meal together and looking forward to the day that we are able to be called to heaven, given our glorified bodies, not have to deal with the pains and corruption and heartaches that we deal with in this body today, be able to be with him and either... There's two ways that this passage, I think, can be dealt with, with the drinking that he'll have with the, uh, in the Father's kingdom, is that we'll all have a meal together and he'll partake of it with us at the wedding feast, or possibly when the new kingdom that is set up on earth, then that will be when he will have that drink together with his followers. But either way, that's in the future, and that's something for us to look forward to, our time with Jesus. So let's celebrate communion together, and the worship team will come, come up. And ushers pass out the elements, hold the elements, and we'll take it together after all of us uh, have received it.